Dr. Guyanne Tarosian is our guest this week on Class Talkers as we explore the changing world of radio, how the world discovers new music in the 21st century, and the challenges of news in the polarized world of journalistic echo chambers. Guyanne, you and I have something very much in common. We've both been in the radio business, and it seems to me that a lot has happened to the radio business and not all of it is good. What does your research indicate uh, that has happened in the 21st century to radio? Hi, Tim. I did a research project with a colleague of mine who's a broadcast consultant, and um, we asked audience members, we surveyed audience members, 600-plus people across the nation, to tell us why they listen to radio, if they do, and if they do, how long, and finally, what they think is the future of radio. This was done in 2005, as I mentioned, and people were telling us that if they're listening to radio, to terrestrial radio, they're planning to stay loyal to it. And they were saying that, yes, the industry is changing, there are lots of other forms of uh, listening, and back then it was just the beginning of online radio stations and um, other services, but people said that the industry would live on. And what we see today, Tim, is it's not only living, it's living in a different form. It's being reincarnated, uh, transformed into a different form, uh, going from terrestrial broadcast radio into what we call podcasting, which I, I fairly, you know, if, if, if I were to speak honestly, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, I would know when I see it, but I cannot describe it. Well, it seems like it's growing like topsy. I was just reading the other day that there are now 650,000 different podcasts that you can get on iTunes. The first podcast that emerged, you you would subscribe to them and you would have an application that would go get them like your mail service. Whenever a new episode would come out, the program would go and get that episode into your computer. Back then it was just computers. Now you can get it on your phone, but basically now um, I, I understand that you can just go online and find those podcasts yourself and just keep it there. And with applications, with apps on your smartphones, you can just keep them there without the chase and search, just like your other apps, such as airline tickets or Expedia or others, you know, whether whatever happens, it just up, updates by, by itself. And I would think that because of the ubiquity now of smartphones and the fact that they have quite a bit of storage capacity, that uh, listening of a variety of things is now enhanced by the fact that nobody wants to leave home without this in their pocket anymore. No, and I just had lunch with a group of women, one of them slightly older than me, and I don't mean it in a... um, in a bad way, I just meant that she probably lived in a different era for a bit longer than I did. <laughs> she told me, if anyone comes to her house, they're forbidden from having their phones on them. They have to leave them at the door. They have to turn them off. And I told her, it's unacceptable because phones are much more nowadays. It's not just a distraction. It's also uh, an extension of our existence. It's our arms and legs and our eyes and ears 
So podcasting, listening to podcasts, listening to music, listening to my Pandora when I go into my car, it starts automatically picking up the signal from my phone. I don't even think about it, and it's very irritating when it pauses for a moment. <laughs> well, that's what my students tell me, is that, that very often they have their phone with their streaming music, either Pandora or uh, Spotify and or Apple Music, and the Bluetooth in the car automatically picks it up, precluding their use of AM-FM radio. Yes, it does. AM-FM radio in upstate New York. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> they just don't exist. You know, there are a couple of good stations, and once you leave their coverage area, they're gone. So I'm not saying the ones we have here are bad. I'm just saying they don't cover enough. And people today, they're mobile. We drive everywhere, and that's when we need to listen to something. So something that's uninterrupted, that's preferable to the terrestrial radio that's AM, FM, you know, interrupted as soon as you cross the 50-mile radius. Well, we're also insisting on being able to listen to what we want to listen when we want to listen to it. And it seems to me we live in an era of short attention spans and insistence on having what I want to hear when I want to hear it wherever I am. It is true, but I would argue in support of that selectivity, I would say it is um, content on demand rather than content that comes at you. And there are uh, benefits to both modes of listening. When we used to listen to FM radio, we would be exposed to new content. The programs that we heard, you know, jazz at noon or jazz at midnight or, you know, let's let's hear some new new tunes. You would learn about new things that you never knew existed and you would never think of purchasing them or going after them so the radio when it came into your space invasively you you would be exposed to new things through that service through that mode of uh, communication nowadays it's all by demand so unless you know what to look for you cannot really know about it say i have um, a google device at home i have to tell google what i want to hear so all I know is let's play some Portuguese music or mm -hmm. let's play some uh, Oscar Peterson piano tunes. And, you know, by the way, it starts playing the favorite tunes that made it Oscar Peterson radio. And then it goes on and on and gradually it degrades. Instead of selection, instead of natural selection or how they call it evolution, um, DNA, Cleaning it actually goes into garbage. Really? So at the end of your listening session, it would be playing outrageous things that are so far removed from your original quality because there just isn't as much, and it's a computer choosing. So well, they, the computer would pick up on one um, aspect of it, one feature, and then it would go in that direction. So on-demand is good. Nowadays, our lives are on demand because there's so much available out there that you have to choose a channel. Our lives are channeled, but it does not allow us exposure to new things. That's why people were talking about um, tunnel vision or living in our own ideological tunnels because we only go to Facebook or social other social media spaces where people select to be like you. I always wondered, since I'm a little bit older and I can remember 
when uh, AM radio called the tune. And uh, if you wanted to find out what was new in music, you had to listen to AM radio. And then in the 1970s, they put FM, AM, FM radio combinations in cars, and suddenly FM radio was calling the tune. And then in the 1980s, there was something called music television on something called cable, and you had to watch MTV in order to find out what was new in the world of music. And, um, and then, of course, you also had to have a music video. You had to have a video uh, with your music. And then in the 21st century, um, there's YouTube, there's Spotify, and there's Pandora. But how do, you, how do you find out what's new in music and how is it found for you? Social media. People who you trust, they would recommend things. Uh, you would be accidentally exposed to music through other forms of media, through motion picture, by being in other people's cars. I don't know. You, you just don't. Um, everything is, by definition, everything is based on your preference. So there is no way of promoting anything. Oh, yeah, and then Pandora may... Um, I've heard playlists that came on instead of ads and said, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, naming an artist, and said, if you want to hear my playlist, click the screen now and you will go and I've tried you know it wasn't my preference to listen to country music but I found that some of the the melodies were very compelling that the lyrics were compelling so direct advertising might work and then again Pandora you know degradation or straying <laughs> so we... I thought I thought Pandora had kind of a unique uh, algorithm ver- yeah their algorithm was had 400 different uh, constituent parts to music and it would try to determine which ones you liked uh, they called it the music genome genome yes yes and this was supposedly going to be the solution to uh, providing you with this algorithm the music that you would really like even new music you hadn't inspected before that is true but because the algorithm is too technological it's a robot basically yeah it does the thinking um there is a part of aesthetic liking that does not quantify easily so um yeah things have changed a lot and i wouldn't say it's a narrow um attention span it's more more about what's out there and how you choose your listening mode and i would imagine that because of these devices yeah Um, cell phones I mean my 15 years ago when I first started teaching I would have to say quiet boys and girls Mr. Welch is about ready to uh, start the class I never have to say be quiet anymore they're quiet they're already quiet their noses are in their screens but they're busy and I do put a clause on my syllabus and highlight it in yellow (laughs) that I will be taking out points for every time I see a cell phone but some people just leave the cell phones on the desk and play their games. I don't have the courage to say, you're, you're out. <laughs> I, I don't want to embarrass an otherwise good student, you know? Well, I stopped fighting that. I, I, I just decided that's a, that's a fight I can't win. I'm, I'm never going to be as interesting as what's one click away on their cell phone. Absolutely. I can never compete with that. Absolutely. And what constitutes an emergency? You know, if your ha- house is flooded uh, or your <laughs> your dishwasher is leaking versus 
who said something about you you want to to see it or text messaging just out of boredom yeah we cannot win it and i i wouldn't struggle because as i said you know the cell phones the smartphones are extensions of our ears our eyes our sense of direction navigation and they've eliminated so many businesses i mean they've eliminated the camera business they've eliminated the watch business arguably not perhaps eliminated it but certainly changed it the video camera business i was telling people when i used to be a television weatherman it was very rare to find live action footage of a tornado in progress because i mean after all who carries around the big video camera with them uh, mm-hmm. all the time but now of course everybody has um this device in their pocket and they can document their life better than ever before yeah and police body cams and um dash cams in right. Ru- in russia that's right they have that's dash another. cams in russia mm-hmm. so what do you think is the future of radio with all of the uh challenges that it has that we've just talked about um is I- I, I, I'm concerned about the fact that many cell phone manufacturers could have allowed uh, these devices to pick up AM and FM radio signals, but they disabled that chip in the Apple iPhone. So it's it's not going to die. The medium of radio is never going to die because it is portable, inexpensive, it's easy to make, it speaks to you directly, it's personable, it carries a lot of information without a lot of challenges and restrictions as opposed to video, which people can now produce easily as well, but you have to be there to to take a video shot. And for an audio conversation, you don't need to be there. You can speak with someone who's miles and miles away from you. So it is much more flexible and nimble and I think it will live on but just in different forms so podcasting is one of the forms now and who knows what other forms will exist in the future I just think that because of our need to talk and engage in discourse this form is never going to die and music is such a fundamental thing that will carry on um, because from the dawn of Humanity from the dawn of civilizations, music was such a natural, organic form to communicate emotion, to communicate mood, that it will not go away. And therefore, I think the mode of speaking and illustrating speech with music, illustrating speech with ambience, that will stay on. You know, music design, sound design. Not to mention that for many people who are visually challenged um, this is the main form of, of exploring the world. So um, I think it has a life in its future. Well, you were talking about music, and I sometimes talk to my students about the fact that uh, uh, nobody seems to buy music in the conventional way anymore. Back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, a lot of people got rich off of music. A lot of people, uh, arguably, they because they got rich, some of the best music ever made might have been made in the 20, in the latter part of the 20th century. And the peak was in 1999 when uh, was, that was the peak of something called compact disc sales, CD sales. And uh, now 
only half as much money is being made in the sale of music as was the case in 1999. And I keep wondering uh, if that means that uh, the money is leaving the music business and therefore we're going to have less music somehow. No, I don't think that's the case. I'm not an expert in the music industry, but um, I understand the, the format. I understand the way it communicates, you know, the human voice, um, singing, and the, the instruments. Um, I think you're right there. It is changing, it is shifting, but there is money to be made in all those apps, in music search services, because um, artists are continuing to work. Human creativity has never stopped. It's just the forms of making money, and it will probably switch into those devices, into applications, like cars, you know, self-driving cars, uh, Uber ride-sharing. Those things, will, they will continue existing, but the mode of, tra- tra- the mode of um, commerce is, is shifting. So I will not speak of the music industry as such, but I think that there, there are some commonalities. And of course, because of the portability of music represented by First, perhaps the Walkman and then the iPod and now the cell phone. Um, People can take different forms of audio wherever they go. And I know uh, one of the things that I'm involved in is the creation of audiobooks. And audiobooks is the only part of the publishing industry that's still growing. Mm-hmm. And it went up 22% last year, whereas print books are going down and e-books are flat. Audio books are going up exponentially, perhaps because they started out from a lower number. I feel it has something to do with the mobility of our society and uh, the further specialization of people in the workforce. In other words, if you're looking for a job, it may be farther away from where you live And if you make enough money, you wouldn't want to live near your workplace anyway because that place would be polluted and busy and not so calm and green. Um, It would be far from schools and pools and parks. So our society is becoming more and more commute-oriented and we want to use up every second of our lives when we're in the gym, when we're um, relaxing in the pool or when we're driving. So um, I think the portability of media is also linked to the portability of the workforce commuting back and forth. Uh, For instance, you know, um, just to mention podcasts, uh, we're thinking about creating podcasts for people who are too busy to go elsewhere um, to hear a lecture, but who can download such lectures onto their devices and listen to them during the commute. So educational podcasts are yeah. one thing. And books, I think, belong in the same category. Audiobooks for fun, for literature appreciation, um, just you know, as a recreational activity, or as a learning activity. You could listen to your textbook, for example, during your commute. I know you commute 90 minutes or yes. an hour and a half yes. every uh, other day. And that is time that you want to spend productively because uh, every second counts nowadays. You know, we we live such busy lives. We're involved in so many activities. And having access to media, having access to digital media specifically, 
that defines who we are, you know, that defines our places where we are. And that's why when my friend said, I'm not going to let you into my house with that cell phone, I don't exist without my cell phone. If I leave it at home and go to the store, I have to turn around and come back. Because what if my daughter calls and needs my social security because she's having a baby? You know, I want to be there with my cell phone (laughs) to tell her my social... uh, because there are emergencies and there are s- digital emergencies. Well, some people want to suggest that preoccupation with a cell phone is some sort of pathology rather than, you know, that it, it causes people to be unable to have interpersonal relationships. It, those relationships are interpersonal. They are between me and my mom. If she's on social media, she would text me. She would show me a photograph uh, uh, she would show me a letter that she sent, you know, she, that she received. She would send me a letter, uh, a photo of a letter that I need to interpret to her uh, from English. How is that not interpersonal? It is highly interpersonal, and it better be secure. But it's also on on a mass scale. If you choose to go online and tweet something, then it becomes mass. So there is uh, the rise of narcissism in our society oh, but i wouldn't call it narcissism it is more media savvyism it is you know your ability to communicate with the world at least people who choose to communicate with you because not everyone is going to read my tweet True. nobody is going to read my tweet other than people who choose to follow me so it is kind of interpersonal and the kind of people who tend to be followed are sports stars political stars, musical stars. Celebrities. Celebrities of one form or another. Yeah, former leaders, current leaders. I would not trust that mode of communication too much because it is impulsive, and once it's out there, you can never retrieve it back. (laughs) I remember in the um, earlier days of emailing, you know, someone would write a wrong email send it to the wrong person, and then would try to retrieve it. There is no way. Now with social media, it's even worse. Yes. It's out there. Even if you delete the original file, it still exists in other people's files, devices. Social media is the closest thing we have to life everlasting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't call it exactly life, but it's some form of existence, you know, in, in digital files. You mentioned my commute. One of my biggest uh, uh, loves that gets me through that commute, in addition to the podcast that we've been talking about, is satellite radio. Uh-huh. I mean, it could be argued that another threat to terrestrial radio is the satellite radio monopoly that was allowed to be created when 10 years ago or so, both... Sirius and XM? Uh, Sirius and XM were ready to go broke. And Congress gave them special dispensation to merge into a monopoly, and that saved them. But at the same time, they were basically in the radio advertising business, which took away from the terrestrial advertising radio business. I think for a consumer like me, it makes no difference what I'm listening to. But being a public radio person myself, you know, I would make an exception uh, for a caveat that is public radio and regular legacy forms of terrestrial radio 
they treat advertising, revenue making, or the lack of advertising as one of their main features, whereas SiriusXM, you know, some of the content depends on their mode of uh, marketing, uh, their, their business model. So quality is very much dictated by the way they make their living. And um, yes, it does not make a huge difference whether uh, that content is made in one place or many places, you know, speaking of a monopoly, I don't care if it comes to me from Colorado or from next door, but it does influence, it does affect the the content a lot um, in the sense of um, paying attention to things that are around me, being sensitive, being... Um, you know, resonating with what's around me or that station. And it does change the meaning of it somehow. So I don't know if, if it's possible to create good content on Sirius and XM. I don't think they have gone after speaking radio, talk radio, although they do have, they do have some programs. Well, they, they run the audio for a lot of cable news operations mm-hmm. and and business news operations and of course NPR has a one or more stations on there that uh, um, you know the individual things like on point or something have their own station or NPR now is something you can listen to on satellite radio so you can get different um, refeeds of existing programs which of course and of course NPR is a big leader in podcasting one of the big names on NPR, Bob Edwards, yes, he switched to um, satellite radio, I think. Yes. And a lot of celebrity radio broadcasters switched to satellite, to the more commercial model. When they were tired of getting up at 1 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I would assume, they just went to a place where they could operate as a normal individual, you know, with a normal sleep cycle. Uh, so disassociating yourself from current reality from the time uh, constraint and living in the world of time delay of something that's streaming you know so i think it solves a lot of problems but it also um, compromises a lot of sensitivity towards your current moment being able to react if there is a flood or an earthquake you know i hope not but if something would happen being able to react in real time. That's that's one of the things that we value terrestrial radio for. It's portable, it's quick, it's flexible, and you can take it to the basement when you're hiding. And someone out there at a station would be present in the moment to give you updates. Whereas other forms that are more time delayed and more estranged from your space, your geography, those are not as sensitive to to your needs. And I think we're compromising. But instead of that, we have all the other apps and devices that come to replace the portability uh, of terrestrial radio. So um, I think that, again, as you mentioned, you know, NPR exists in, on satellite and exists in podcast. It doesn't matter what mode you use to bring your content to your audience. It's just... Um, the quality, the principles, the uh, the conversations that you can have. And, of course, NPR is perhaps the most successful network with a collection of stations around the country 
that collectively has the biggest audience in the morning of any individual radio network. I agree with that. Because of its live mode, they are reacting to reality much quicker, much better. You know, they still put their programs together with a live director. So there's live switching on the air? Live switching, and the director would point (laughs) at different people telling them to play the music or to start talking about news. And that's why when 9-11 happened many, many years ago, 18 years ago, they they switched to live coverage, to play-by-play mode. And, of course, there were challenges against that because you really want to balance your credibility, your reliability uh, with the reaction time. You know, you want to be quick, but you don't want to say anything that and comes And they probably were watching television to report on what was going on uh, because television was right there and uh, every, every network had their own feed on uh, their own several cameras on the towers. I would agree with you, but I would also argue that it's not enough to see something. You really need to understand what you're seeing because when you see something from a distance, it's very confusing, especially a large catastrophe like that. You really need the interpretation. You need verified information. You need um, expert feedback. And I think the Associated Press and the news services that were helping at that time, that's my assumption. They were feeding news. I've been in newsrooms like you have many, many years uh, ago. Uh, They would give you the information on minute-by-minute base, and you had to not only digest and reproduce, but also evaluate that information, what to put first, what to disregard. And that took some time, and that created challenges. But I think they were able to react to reality on a play-by-play basis, whereas... I've heard anecdotes of stations playing Christmas music on 9-11. Really? The, yeah, those are textbook examples of how satellite radio or conglomerated, concentrated services, they had no way of reacting to, to live events. So there is a very thin balance between you know good quality, consistency, something that can run through time zones, you're driving from state to state, and you can keep listening uninterrupted like a book you're reading uninterrupted, yeah. uh, whereas terrestrial radio has the benefit of reacting to, to the environment quickly. And, of course, uh, the other thing about radio that distinguishes it from other forms of media is that it can really be done by one person. It can be quickly put on the air. Uh, you can immediately... Um, without a lot of technical support, be able to um, report on things that are going on. You can read things to other people. You can um, patch in a, a phone call from somewhere else. And uh, with relatively modest technology, you can go on the air and be heard everywhere. I agree with you on that as well. And Whereas I was... television is a very collaborative kind of thing. You know, you require... Uh, sophisticated cameras and uh, directors and four or five people coordinating things. But on radio, it's relatively easy to do it with one or two people. As my friend Julia Barton would say, she's now the uh, producer of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Oh, yes. 
She has worked uh, for American public media for a long while, and she was educated at the University of Iowa nonfiction writing program with an MFA. Um, and she also traveled to Armenia, my home country, to teach a seminar to professional journalists. I hope Julia will listen to this program at some point. But when when we were talking about our favorite medium of radio, she would say, but television has so many variables. Something goes wrong and it's ruined. And you have to be there to get the footage. Um, I was Good just point. teaching my class advanced audio production that ended at 2 o'clock, and I invited one of the students to come to the podium, bring his project, and edit it in front of the entire group because that way he could advance his work, mm -hmm. and this would be a hands-on demonstration. And so my student was putting it all together. I was telling him, zoom in here and zoom in there and copy and paste and then, you know, cut this cough. Somebody's sniffling, <laughs> cut that out. And then have a Word document underneath where you can put your notes and then create a script. And I was saying, do you all see how easy this is? <laughs> this is so easy. This is so cheap. It's a shame not to be able to do this. And now when you go into the world, you have this skill. And earlier in my journalism classes in the morning, I have two sections of journalism. I told my students a, an episode of my career I don't remember what year it was, but I was in Iowa City working um, in public radio, WSQS, WSUI radio station, AM, by the way. Oh, I was on an AM really? station, news station that carried MPR. Carries farther, farther that way. Yep, it does. It does go farther. And we were um, sitting in the newsroom around 9 o'clock in the morning, if I'm not mistaken. And suddenly someone um, called and said that the old Capitol building is on fire. Iowa City used to be the capital of the state. Ma. There is a small hill in the center, a beautiful spot, and there is a white building. The portrait of that building is still in my house as a parting gift from one of my friends and colleagues. So that building has a golden dome, and a crew of workers was on a scaffolds fixing up the dome, repairing it with sheets of gold. And one of them was using um, heat. They were welding or fusing, you know, they were fixing it up. And suddenly uh, something caught fire. And these workers were told when something like that happens, just abandon and leave, save your lives, because otherwise the insurance and the employer and the unions, those would be upset <laughs> if you risk your life for a little piece of metal. So what they did, they let that little flame continue burning and they quickly came down and watched how the whole structure was wow. caught on fire. So this golden dome was melting. The fire went into the building, which was turned into a museum space. Oh, really? And it got damaged so badly. The water sprinklers went on, and they really... The water sprinklers went off and um, made everything wet oh, inside yeah. that building, the museum. So we ran to that place and started collecting information so what what did we do the three of us it was me a regular producer with a lens end bag and a recorder inside i ran to that place where the fire was happening ran to the capitol building and started interviewing witnesses and also officials people who were in the building at the time of the fire then um my news director l kern 
he told us to get going and get running. And when we reached the destination, the Capitol building, he realized he forgot to bring his bag. <laughs> so he was standing there being a news director, but unable to do anything. And the third person, Dean Borg is his name. I believe he's still working. He had a old Nokia type phone. So he called up the station and he started directly, you know, covering it live. Whatever he did, he was doing in real time. So we had three modes of operation. One, forgetting things. The other one, collecting audio to edit later and put it on the news. And the third one, just going for broke. You know, he was going on, on the air live. So it is portable. Yeah. But it's really easy to forget a little piece and then you're done. <laughs> well, I was reminded when you were talking about uh, what happened at the Chicago Sun-Times about four years ago when they decided to fire all 30 of their news photographers uh, mm -hmm. and instead hire back three or four of them who were good with Photoshop and then solicit pictures from their readers. Yeah, from audiences. Mm -hmm. Because why would you send out a news photographer to cover an event when by the time they get there, it'll be over? It's over, yeah. Like if it's a fire or... or uh, some accident or a plane crash or something like that, why not solicit from your readers who have an excellent picture-taking device in their pocket uh, who are obviously going to be the first on the scene and then just have um, people who are good with Photoshop to be able to prepare those pictures for the uh, paper itself or the online version of it. Do you remember the manhunt after Boston Marathon, after the bombing of yes. the Boston Marathon? The manhunt went into Watertown, Massachusetts. It was the police chasing um, two perpetrators, two of the suspects, the brothers, Zahar and Ruslan. Um, Narayev? The, like no, that. no, the, uh, I forget their last names. Anyway. Huh. They were from... From Dagestan. Dagestan. Yeah. A uh, former Soviet so, uh, republic. Yeah, so I can't remember the last name. Anyway, it's all right. Yeah, they're we'll not. Cut it out. Cut it out. Tsarnaev. Tsarnaev. So the police were chasing the suspects: brothers Zohar, Zahar, mm -hmm. Zohar, and Ruslan uh, Tsarnaev. Good memory. The the older brother Ruslan, he was shot and killed during that chase. The younger brother, he was hiding... In a boat. In a boat. And you know who found him? Citizens, people who lived in Watertown. Watertown residents. And a lot of them were um, taking video with their phones, um, taking still photos and sending it to various media organizations. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, in Boston, all big media is concentrated in that big city. You know, right. They have a lot of good stations public radio stations, television stations. And a good friend of mine, uh, Bruce Gellerman, who works for WBOR, he was one of the NPR veterans who started the um, network. The name's familiar to me. Mm -hmm. In yeah. the early 70s, um, Bruce Gellerman was a producer, radio producer. He was um, on a program um, now, is it here and now? Yeah, I remember that. I think. But so he was, he lives in Watertown and he was among the citizens who were on the spot and 
being a radio producer, he actually gathered a lot of information. And I think that helped him get his uh, passion for radio rekindled and go back and work for WBOR where he is now. Oh. And our colleague, Andrew Bottomley. That's right. Who is in, in the he's opposite. He's there today. He's there today. He's in the opposite office from you, Tim. Right. Uh, Andrew took a group of students to WBOR and I told him, say hi to Bruce and invite him to come to our campus sometime in the future. Oh, so I would say, you know, it's not dead. It's not dying. It's very traditional. They have uh, veteran reporters working still until now from the 70s to the 2020 <laughs> um it's it's a matter of longevity it's a good medium it is and of course um having been in the radio news business and then graduated to the television news business a lot of the people that i worked with got their training in newspapers which seemed to be dying uh, a faster death uh, than radio might be, but all of these things are changing. I just concern myself with the fact that we might be losing the ability to uh, have journalists trained in a certain way in the ability to write, the ability to know how to find information out, um, how to ask questions. Those, I'm concerned that those skills will not be cultivated when some of these public media that we've talked about change into something more decentralized on a phone. You know, I share that concern with you, Tim, because if you were to think that laissez-faire markets would regulate themselves, they would correct the errors, and they would throw out false news and keep the right ones, well, it's not happening. Nowadays, what we have, the real media are considered to be, you know, bad, and what we have is um, garbage taking over. I, I can't think of anything else because there is so much of it. And people are losing the sense of what's verified, what's not, and people are losing the appreciation for the truth. You can never achieve absolute truth. There are versions of the truth, but credibility is one thing we want to keep. And now credibility is losing value losing its value because anybody can do anything they want. They can manipulate images, they can manipulate content, manipulate opinion, and everything goes because everyone is allowed to be online. Uh, in fact, we live in what we call um, participatory culture. The media has created a participatory culture. Andrew and I both teach classes in participatory media. What, what we have around us is um, lowered standards for participation. Anyone can create media content, post it online, share it with audiences. And audiences take it or leave it as they wish. Nobody's making them buy that content or take that content. But it actually erodes the, the limits of credibility very strongly. So it's not necessarily a bad thing because... When a thousand voices speak the truth, it is really hard for an autocrat to push propaganda. Well, that's true. And you come from a system that was known for having one voice determined from the top. So it is more democratic. It is multivocal. It is more pluralistic. And if you look at social movements, um, in those movements, you know, the multitude of voices... Truth prevails eventually. 
like um, the the Twitter Twitter um, movement at Ferguson. Those things, you know, those social media forums, they help to bring out what the public thinks about. But on the other hand, the limits of credibility, you know, the criteria for credibility and truth, they're eroded. And that's why we've been able to be so polarized in recent years, and the media seems similarly polarized to go after certain audiences that have a marketplace for what they want to hear. Absolutely, and we create echo chambers. Instead of hearing all the voices that are out there and making decisions on our own, we just go to the echo chamber that caters to our interests and our viewpoints. But with a million echo chambers, you have the same effect. You have a multitude still. But these multiple groups of people, they don't talk to one another. And that's why I agree with you, we have a polarized society. But at least you and I have made some sense here today. Well, absolutely, because we work together uh, for the benefit of our students. We love the medium of audio, of radio, and we will keep it alive. Dinosaurs like you and me will keep it alive. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Thank you, Guyan. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to speak with you. You've been listening to another episode of Class Talkers, the podcast of the State University of New York at Oneonta. Today's conversation has been with Dr. Guyan Tarosian of the Communications and Media Department. And I'm Tim Welch.